Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. You guys ready? I came wire, fire, ready to rock. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn over 2 Kings chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just turn your neck to the screen. Cool? 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to start reading at verse 1. I'm going to read a little story that some of you may not even realize is in the Bible. um, But I think it's got some some serious stuff today. I'm just going to read enough to whet your appetite. Cool? Starting at verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 4. It says this. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil, except a small jar of olive oil. Hey, for the next couple minutes that we are gonna share together, I'm gonna preach a message that I'm simply calling this, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. We're in a series right now as a church called Information. It's obviously a play on words, information. But I found that so often we can come to church and get puffed up on a lot of information, but that information should lead to transformation. That all of a sudden the things that God informs our heart of should begin to mold us and form us into the image of Jesus. Not only is Jesus the architect of our soul, but he's the archetype of our soul. That he is the one who begins to mold mold us and shape us into his image. And today in this series called Information, I wanna preach a message I'm calling, I've got nothing. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever taken a look at your life and come away with the estimation, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to do for myself. I've got nothing to offer the people around me. And I sure as heck have nothing to offer God. And if you feel that way this morning, if you wandered in this church, feeling like you've got nothing. I want you to understand you are exactly the person God is looking for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for the next couple moments that we're gonna share. Lord, these moments are happening not because we put church on our calendar, but because you put it on your calendar long before the world was, the foundation of the world was even laid. Lord, this moment in time and space has been on your heart for so long. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would just put me on like a glove. Lord, you and I are painfully aware of the fact that I am nothing without you. And Lord, I pray that over the next couple moments, you would make yourself, yourself known. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't leave today saying, wow, what a sermon, but wow, what a savior. Wow, what a savior. And Lord, I thank you for it right now. It's in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. And everybody said, come on, I'll drink to that. It's water, calm down. Have you ever, have you ever felt stuck Have you ever felt stuck in your life? You know, maybe it was relationally. Okay, ladies, stop nudging your your husband. Okay, I see you. God sees you. Cut it out. All right, deal with it at home. So have you ever felt stuck? Maybe relationally. Maybe it was emotionally. Maybe spiritually you felt stuck. Or maybe it was even 
physically, okay? You had gotten yourself into a physical pickle, okay? Now, I'll be honest, uh, there are different moments in my life I, I could tell you about, but one moment kind of takes the cake, okay? And this moment happened when I was seven years old, and you have to understand, my mom and dad were youth pastors when I was growing up, okay? That's why I'm weird, and that's why I love Little Caesar's pizza, okay? Because <laughs> it's what I grew up on, all right? So my mom and dad, you did it to me. Calm down, Okay. My mom and dad were youth pastors. And I remember this one particular time uh, they took a, a, the youth group on a youth camping trip and we went to Fredericksburg, Texas uh, to Enchanted Rock. Anybody ever been to Enchanted Rock? Come on. If you love the Lord, raise your hand. Let's just get everybody to raise their hand so we don't feel alone. Okay. So we go to Enchanted Rock and I remember we're sitting out there and my dad says, all right, we're gonna summit the big dome, okay? And the big dome is kind of like the main attraction, okay? It's the closest thing we have in West Texas to a mountain, okay? So we're sitting there and we're like, we're gonna summit the big dome. So we hike up the big dome and I get to the top and I am, my little seven-year-old body, okay? I felt like my spirit was beginning to leave. I was so dead, okay? I was completely dehydrated, completely innervated of all my energy. Okay, I get to the top of this dome and I'm ready to just chill. And my dad looked at me and he said, uh, no, son, we're not done we've got to go through the snake hole. And I thought what you're thinking right now, I was like, what's the snake hole, okay? And what the snake hole essentially is, it is a tunnel that goes underground that you crawl through on your hands and on your knees, bobbing and weaving sharp, jagged rocks until you finally pop out on the other side of the earth and take a group photo in front of the Great Wall of China, okay? This is what, this is what the snake hole is. It is a tunnel that goes underground. So my dad's like, we're gonna go through the snake hole. Everybody line up single file line. So all of a sudden the, the kids begin to get in line. You know, I'm a little seven year old kid in my leg. I'm, I'm 6'2 now, but I wasn't then. I wasn't born this way, you know what I mean? And so I, 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 I try to get in line and finally get in line. And the young man that jumped in line in front of me um, was a young man by the name of Willie, okay? And you need to understand this about Willie. Willie was 15, but he was not the size nor the stature of your average 15-year-old, okay? Willie was, as his mom called him, big-boned, okay? <laughs> Willie was on the more robust side of life. Willie was a little thick. Willie was alignment, okay? Willie at youth group didn't go back for seconds. He went back for six of that free pizza because it annoyed the heck out of me because I'm like, yo, dude, that's my lunch for the rest of the week. Chill, okay? So Willie's a big dude, mammoth of a man, right? He gets in front of me. And we're about to go into the snake hole. And all of a sudden we begin to go one by one by one into the snake hole. And we're crawling through on our hands and on our knees, bobbing and weaving, like I said, the sharp jagged rocks until finally we get to this point in the snake hole in which we've got to pass through a crevice. We've got to pass through a gap. We've got to pass through this tight space. And Willie sees the crack, sees the crevice and goes, <laughs> piece of cake, all right? And Willie knew how to crush cake, all right? So Willie, <laughs> sorry, Willie, sees the crack, sees the crevice, and he goes, here we go. And he shoves the top portion of his body into this crevice and quickly realized that the latter portion of him was not coming, okay? Willie is now stuck in the snake hole. And I'll be real, um, I had thought up until this moment that Willie was a Christian, okay? But his vocabulary, when he got stuck, told me he definitely wasn't, okay? He began to utter words I had never heard my pastor dad say, okay? Let's just say 
it was not exactly positive, encouraging K-love, okay? It was not something you're gonna hear over Christian radio. So he sits there, he gets stuck, and he begins to lose his mind. He is screaming like a wild banshee, okay? He is going off, he is, he is flailing his arms, he is spitting, he is cussing, he is doing all of these things, okay? And so all of a sudden, Willie's voice began to reverberate off the walls of the snake hole till my dad at the front of the line hears him. And he's like, oh no, Willie's in trouble. He knew exactly who it was. You know, it's like every youth group has that kid. You know, it's like, we know exactly who it is. And so he begins to make his way back through the snake hole and he finds Willie. Willie is stuck. He is, he is losing it, man. He's lost all his marbles. And he's sitting there going crazy. And my dad just begins to stoop down next to him and says, um, um, Willie, it's Pastor Brandon. Um, I see you, buddy, and I think, listen to me, I think if we can get you to calm down, if we just get you to calm down, I think we can get you out of here. You see, the problem is you're freaking out, which is making you breathe in a little bit more. It's causing your chest to inflate, which is making you a bit bigger than you actually are. And I think if we can get you to calm down, we can get you, we can get you out of here. But don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. And would you believe that as my dad just began to speak softly, into Willie's ear, all of a sudden Willie's breathing began to regulate, his pulse began to normalize, and would you believe Willie was able to slip through that crack and that crevice and make it out onto the other side of the snake hole completely and totally safe. Willie was able to move forward. And what I wanna call your attention to in this story is this, so don't miss this, it wasn't really the snake hole that kept Willie stuck where he was. It was how he was responding to the snake hole that was keeping him where he was. And you know, I haven't lived super long. I know we got a lot of gray hairs in the room, so I'm not trying to one-up you, but I've lived long enough to know that life is not nearly as much about what happens to you as it is about how you respond to what happens to you. Because can we be honest, I know you're like a super Christian and I don't mean to step on your toes, but like this church is based on truth. So can we like get truthful for a moment? Can we be real? Like we've all been stuck. We've all felt stuck. Many of us in here today, I would dare to say are stuck. We've all been in a pinched spot. We've all been in that low place. And many of us, if we were to get real, didn't look too dissimilar to Willie didn't look too dissimilar. We've all been stuck. So the question we've got to answer is not, will I get stuck? No, the question we've got to answer is, when you get stuck, how do you respond? When you get stuck, when life begins to close in around you, when you are between a rock and a hard place, how do you respond? Because the truth is what makes or breaks a person is not what they go through, but it's how they go through it. It's how they respond to the season of life they're walking through. And the truth is this, this woman we found a moment ago in 2 Kings chapter four, she is undoubtedly stuck. We don't really know much about this woman. In fact, we're not even, we're not even given her name. We're not even given her name. So we don't really know much about her, but the little bit we do know <laughs> isn't very good. The very first thing we find out about this woman, and don't miss this, she tells us that her husband, the love of her life, has died. The person that she looked dead in the eyes and said out of everybody else on the planet, 
There is nobody I would rather, rather spend the rest of my days with than you. That person is gone. You know, I don't know if there's anything more painful than losing the person that means the most to you. I don't know if there's anything more painful than losing the thing that meant the most to you. She's got this pain, she's got this bitterness, she's got this situation that she's trying to navigate and she's doing the best she can. But to add insult to injury, all of a sudden after her husband dies, some creditors start coming after her. And evidently her husband had died with some debt. And when he died, the debt got transferred to her. So these creditors are coming after her and she can't pay the payment. She doesn't have two pennies to rub together. She's literally got nothing. And they're banging on her door saying, hey, if you don't pay this debt, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take your two little boys and we're gonna enslave them and make them work the rest of their life to pay off this debt. She's literally staring at her boys slipping through her fingers and unable to do anything about it. She's navigating the pain of what she's lost and the fear of what she might lose next. And I don't know if there's ever been a moment where we collectively could probably all relate to this woman on one level or another. Some of you, you are struggling. You are wedged smack dab between the fear of the pain of what you lost to a pandemic, the pain of what you lost to a quarantine and the fear of what you might lose next. The fear of what is yet to come. She is looking at the pain of her past and the fear of her future. Struggling between these two realities, the pain of my past and the fear of my future. I'm wondering if possibly you could relate and wedged between the two, feeling helpless to do anything about it. This woman is stuck. So all of a sudden we see this woman, she's stuck. And I love the way this woman responds to being stuck because we all get stuck. And this woman, we see this, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse one, let's read it. It says this, a wife, the wife of a man from the company of the prophets, cried out to Elisha. Now you have to understand, Elisha is a prophet, okay? Which means he's God's guy, he's God's speaker, he's God's representative, okay? He's God's man to God's people. And so all of a sudden, she begins to cry out to God's man. She begins to cry out to God's representative. She is crying out to God. And you know, I know this is so elementary, but I have found that this is the hardest thing for you and I when we feel stuck. For whatever reason, the last place we run is the place we need to most. God becomes our last resort rather than a first response. And really what I think, I think I know why we do this. It's because religion beat it into you that you have a responsibility to God. Religion has beaten into us this idea that we have to be this onward Christian soldier, kumbaya, I'm responsible to God. And listen to me, when you feel responsible to God, like you've got to hold up your end of the deal, when you are stuck, God becomes the last place you run. And that is why, listen to me, the gospel does not teach us that we have a responsibility to God. No, it teaches us that we have the ability to respond 
to God. Come on, we don't have a responsibility to God. We have the ability to respond to God. God knew you would never be able, able to handle the weight of the responsibility. God knew you couldn't do it. So the big man upstairs came downstairs so he could find you in your stuck place, so he could do something about the things you feel helpless to do anything about. Come on, this is the gospel. It's not that you have this sick religious responsibility to God. No, it's now you have the ability to respond. I've come close. I've drawn near. We have an ability to respond to God. And listen to me. When you get this deep down in your soul, all of a sudden, when you realize, I don't have a responsibility to God. I have the ability to respond to God. When you feel stuck, God will become the first place you Because listen to me, I want you to get this. Faith has to move your mouth before it can move your mountain. Faith has to move your mouth before it can move your mountain. And some of you, your reason you are still stuck where you are is because you have not cried out to God. You've gone to every other person. You've gone to a psychic, you've gone to a guru, you've gone to a YouTuber, you've gone to an influencer, you've gone to your grandma. And the last place you run is the place you need to run most. And I'm telling you, when you realize that God is not put out, God is not sitting there looking holier than thou. How dare you bring that disgusting thing to me? It's not the God we serve. No, he's a God who says, hey, I'm eager to help. I wanna be in this with you. I died. You, 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 you think God doesn't put skin in the game? He shed his skin to get in the middle of your game. God put all his skin into the game. He's gone all in on you. And I'm telling you, when you realize that all of a sudden, God will become the one we cry out to. Faith has to move your mouth before it can move your mountain. So she cries out to the the prophet of God. She cries out to God. And all of a sudden, I love, this is the way Elisha responds to her. He says this, Elisha said to her in verse two, how can I help you? Do you realize that when you come to God with your crap, that's how God responds? God doesn't look at you like I said a moment ago and say, I'm too dignified. I'm too busy answering the prayers of the saints to mess with your stuck place. How dare thee? No, no, God doesn't say, how dare you? He says, how can I help you? How can I help you? I've been more eager to help you than you've ever been to be helped. How can I help you? He says, how can I help you? And then he says this, tell me, what do you have in your house? What do you have in your house? Now, this woman had come up to Elisha and said, I don't have a husband. I don't have money. And I'm about to not have my sons. I don't have, I don't have, and I don't have. And Elisha goes, oh, okay, okay. But what do you have? What do you have? You know, I found it, it's the most annoying and simultaneously liberating thing that when we come to God about what we don't have, he just starts reminding us of everything that we do. He just starts reminding us of everything that we do. Every time we say we're not enough, every time we say we're not gonna make it, God says, you don't gotta make it because I already made it for you. And if you'll bank your life on that, you're gonna make it to the other side. Come on. I have found that so often we want God to fix our problem and God says, I'm more concerned with your perspective. Say, God, I want you to fix my problem. And say, God, God says, the first thing that's gotta shift is your perspective need to change the way you look at your situation before I begin to change your situation. God wants to change your perspective. 
And so as soon as Elisha says, what do you have in your house? This is the way the girl responds. Watch this, this is the way she responds. She says, your servant has nothing. There ain't nothing there. And then she drops this, at all. Your servant has nothing there at all. And the way the, the, way the verse is grammatically laid out implies to me that there could have been a pause right there. The verse keeps going, but it implies that there could have been like a, a, a moment where she stopped talking. And I can just imagine that had she paused right there, um, Elisha, the prophet, would have given her the exact same look my mom <laughs> has given me so many times. You know the look. Chin goes to the side, forehead goes down, eyebrows go up. Like that. It's that like, really? And please continue. Okay. I can just see, I've got nothing. Because then all of a sudden she goes, except, I feel stupid even mentioning, except this small jar of olive oil. I've got nothing except this small, small little thing, this insignificant thing. And you know what I've found? I have found that the enemy does not need to steal what you have if he can get you to forget what you have. The enemy doesn't have to steal what you have if he can get you to forget what you have. So many times we, the enemy doesn't need to steal our joy because we're not using our joy. The enemy doesn't have to steal your peace if you are leaving your peace on the top shelf. The enemy, listen to me, the enemy does not need to steal anything you aren't using against him. And if you have decided to park it, he's cool with it staying there too. The enemy does not have to steal anything that you have just set aside. You know what I found? I found that so many of the people who I know that would look at their life, they take a self-assessment and their estimation was, I've got nothing at all. Those are the very same people who haven't accepted a small thing. The very same people who would look at their life and say, I've got nothing are the very same people who have an accept a small. And what I want you to understand is what you have may be small, but it is not nothing at all. What you have, it may be small, it may be infantile, it may be premature, but it is not nothing at all. And I'm telling you, God loves it when we begin to look at things that seem insignificant and we look through a lens of faith. The enemy doesn't have to steal what you've grown to despise. And that is exactly why Zechariah 4.10 says this. Zechariah 4.10 says, do not despise these small beginnings. The Bible doesn't say, hey, you're looking at it wrong. It's actually not that small. No, he's saying, it's, it's, it's small. It's small. But don't despise it just because it's small. Don't despise it just because it's infantile. Don't despise it just because it hasn't come to its fullest maturity yet. Why? For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Do you know God loves it? God gets jazzed when his kids begin to look at the, the infantile, immature, seemingly pointless parts of their life and say, you know what? I know this may be small, but I refuse to call it nothing at all. I refuse to call it nothing at all. Why? Because to do that requires faith. And the Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. God gets jazzed when you look at the broken, immature, unchristlike parts of your life and say, I may not be there yet, but I am on my way. Come on. 
God loves it when his kids begin to look at what's small and dare to say, no, it's not nothing at all. What you have might be small, but it is not nothing at all. God's given you more than you think. And all of a sudden this woman, she brings, she brings this up to Elisha. She says, oh, I, I feel stupid, but I have this small jar of olive oil. And Elisha goes, okay, let me tell you what to do with it. Notice, Elisha didn't tell her what to do with her oil until she offered the oil, until she acknowledged the oil. And listen to me, there are parts and pockets of your life that you feel God has not given you a blueprint for, that you feel God has not given you directions for. And I'm here to tell you, God will not tell you how to use something you've not offered him. Some of you are like, God, I don't know what to do with my life. And God says, first, I need you to offer me your life. First, I need, to, I need you to offer me your sexuality. First, I need you to offer me your worldview. First, I need you to offer me the bitterness before I tell you how to get over it. First, I need you to offer me the anxiety. First, I need you to offer me that place that you feel nothing good could ever come from. God says, offer it to me and I'll tell you how to use it. All of a sudden she offers this thing and Elisha begins to tell her what to do. And he says this, he says, go around and ask all your neighbors, this is verse uh, three, ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Go around and ask all your neighbors. What is the very first thing Elisha does in the process of her healing? This is step one. He says, okay, 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 I know it's bad. I want you to pull people in. I want you to pull some people into this. You know, I have found that so many times when we come to God about our addiction, when we come to God about our deficiency, when we come to God about those places and pockets of ourselves, we hate. The very first thing God asks us to do is pull people in. Let some people in on this. Let some people into the dysfunction. Why don't you get honest? And this is where so many of us bow out because we're like, <laughs> no, actually God, come here, come here, come here. Come here. I was thinking maybe like you and I could just kind of like have prayer meeting handle this. I was thinking maybe we can go get in a dark space in a dark room, just me and you, and you can just kind of quite literally beat the hell out of me. Like literally any part of me that looks like hell, just beat it out, okay? Please, Lord. That's literally what we, that's so often what we think. And the reason we want that is because we wanna get healed in private so that we can come out in public and act like we never needed healing in the first place. We wanna get healed in private so we can come in public. And I've always been this strong. I've always been this devout. My marriage has always been this good. I've always been this diligent with my, with my web searches. I've always been this good. But listen to me, God cannot get glory from a story you are unwilling to tell. God cannot get glory from a story you are unwilling to tell. We've gotta let some people into our lives. And notice another translation said this, it said, go to your neighbors and borrow empty jars. Go to your neighbors and borrow empty jars. Borrow something from your neighbors. I wanna ask you, um, do the people in your life have anything worth borrowing spiritually? Do the closest people, the people in your cul-de-sac, the people that you are doing life with the closest, that inner circle, your ride or dies, do they have anything you could ever borrow spiritually? Would God ever ask you, hey, go borrow something from them that's gonna make you look like me? 
And if your answer is no, which I'm not making fun of you, and I'm not asking you to cut ties. I'm not asking you to cancel people. The church is talking about, oh, cancel culture. Are you kidding me? We started cancel culture. The church started cancel culture. We've been canceling people over their sin for years. I'm not asking you to cancel people. I'm asking you to bring more people in. I'm asking you to make your circle a little bit bigger. I'm asking you to invite some gray hairs, some some people who know some stuff about the word of God. Because listen to me, God will never ask you to do something you can do all by yourself. God never calls you to a dream so small, all it takes is you to complete it. He always makes sure to call you to something so audacious, so big, so ginormous, there is no way you could ever do it in and of yourself. It takes a village. God says, bring some people in. And notice the kind of jars Elisha tells her to get. He says, go get empty jars. Go get empty jars. Now you and I, I'll be honest, we hate empty. We hate it. Let's be real, we discard empty. We throw empty away. Empty is useless. Empty is valueless. Empty is meaningless. But I want you to see this, what you call empty, God calls available. What you call empty, God calls available. And I want you to understand, if you came in here this morning feeling empty, feeling you like you've got nothing, you're the exact person God wants to use because all that means is you've got the most room for him. You've got the most room for him. What I'm saying is God can't fill what's already full. And that's why every day it is so important that we come before God and say, God, empty me of my pride. Empty me of my self-sabotage. Empty me of my shame, my insecurities, my guilt, my, the pain of my past and the fear of my future. God, I come before you empty. And God says, you're just, you're just the person I wanna use. I come before you empty. God can't fill what's already full. He says, go get empty jars. And then he says this, once you've gathered all your jars, I want you to, I want you to then go home. This is verse four. I want you to then go home, go inside your house, shut the door and begin to pour. He says, pour out that last little bit you've got into jars you don't even own. Take that last little bit you have and pour it in a place you're not even sure you're gonna get to keep. And a lot of us, we get to this stage in, in obeying God, whatever it looks like in your life. This is what it looked like in her life, but whatever it looks like in your life. And this is where we abort the plan. This is where we jump ship. This is where we say, ha ha, deuces, I'm out. Because all of a sudden we go to poor and the enemy begins to slither in and begin to whisper and hiss in your ear and say, oh yeah, 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 uh, hold on. You can't pour, you're too poor. To pour. You're too P-O-O-R to P-O-U-R. You're, you're not enough. You're not enough for this task. Look at the little pathetic jar of oil you have. That's literally all you have left in your house. You're not enough. And this is why, listen to me, don't miss this. This is why Elisha told her to do one thing before she began to pour. He said, shut the door. Shut the door. Shut the door. Before you begin to pour, it's time to shut the door. Because listen to me, you are never more vulnerable to the lies of the enemy than right before you obey God. 
You are never more vulnerable to getting talked out of what God talked you into than right before you go to do it. And God knows who he's working with. And he's saying, I know you're not gonna be able to handle that lie, so why don't you just cut it off at the pass? Why don't you just shut the door? Why don't you shut the door to every insecurity, everything that tries to talk you out of what I've talked you into? Come on, it is time to shut the door on the lies of the enemy. Come on. Some of you are so close. You're so close to what God's called you to. And all it is, it's time to shut the door. I was here earlier this week, pouring over this message. I was late one night and I was just reading this passage over and over and over, just devouring it. And all of a sudden I got to this part and the shut the door literally jumped, the, jumped off the page at me. Quite literally, God was like, shut the door. And so I got jazzed, you know, I'm like, I feel the Lord. I'm like at my desk and stuff. And I got up, it's like, like, like literally midnight here at the church. I'm walking around the building, I'm like, shut the door. I literally got on the stage and I was like preaching full tilt. There's no, nobody in the seats. And I'm like, it's time to shut the door. Come on, you know, I'm just going for it. I'm just fleshing this out. And all of a sudden I was like, whew, all right, cool. Feel good about that. Let me go study some more. And I literally, I got off the stage. I walked down that aisle. I walked out into the foyer and as I'm going to our offices, right in the front, I'm literally muttering to myself the whole time, shut the door, shut the door on the enemy, shut the door, don't let him slither in. All of a sudden, this is what I walk up on. And this right here is why you shut the door, my friends. Sorry, bud, door seems to be shut. Can't come in here. Come on, the enemy is waiting for an open door. He's literally sitting there just waiting. Will you open the door? But I'm telling you, if you would dare to take God at his word and shut the door, he's gotta go no more. Shut the door and the enemy can lie no more. And the beautiful thing about when you shut the door is the enemy can tell you, you look stupid trusting God, but you know he has no idea what you look like on the other side of that door. I know you are talking out of your behind right now because you have no idea what I look like trusting God right now. Come on, it is time to shut the door on the lie of the enemy. It's time to shut the door. So all of a sudden this woman, she does what Elisha says, she shuts the door. And this is where the plane begins to land. If I can have somebody just come and play quietly. She shuts the door and all of a sudden she's left with her boys, quiet house, and a few pots. And so she sits there and you can imagine she just looks over to that shelf where that last little bit of oil is. She begins to wander over there and I can just see her reaching up, pulling it off, just blow some of the dust off and just say, guys, this is all we've got left. Do we really wanna do this? Our sons are probably like, mom, we don't have anything left. Let's just try it. And so see her take the lid off and she sits there and she, probably with tears in her eyes. Listen to me, a yes with a question mark is just as powerful as a yes with an exclamation point. All God needs is a yes. Even if your knees are shaking, even if your hands are shaking, even if your eyes are tearing while you're giving him the thing he's asking for because you have no idea how he could ever use this, how he, anything could ever come from the last little bit of my place. God says, that's all I need. So she sits there, she's shaking and she takes that first jar. She begins to pour. She's pouring and she's pouring. 
And all of a sudden she's expecting the oil to run out. She's like, this is all that's in there. And all of a sudden it keeps going. It keeps going. All of a sudden, you know, she's like, is this Mary Poppins? Like, what, what is this? She's looking around like, do, do, do you see this? Oh my God, oh, okay, that one's full. All right, give me the next one, give me the next one. All of a sudden she begins to pour into that one and it begins to pour and pour and pour and it fills that one up. And all of a sudden she goes, give me another one. And she begins to pour and pour and pour and it fills that. And as she pours and pours and pours, there's just more and more and more and more. And what I want you to see is more did not appear until she dared to pour. She did not see more until she got willing to pour. It wasn't like she was sitting there and all of a sudden the oil just began to ooze and bubble and it started coming over the side like God was already doing something and ah! like, no, it looked still. It looked like not enough. But when she went out on the word, when she began to step out in faith and began to pour out the little insignificant, seemingly pointless part of her life, God began to make it enough. She began to have everything that she never thought she could. And what I want you to understand is this, listen to me. Your miracle begins when your faith gets in motion. Your miracle begins when your faith gets in motion. And there are some of you Listen to me, don't miss this. There are some of you, you are struggling with the fact that God, why am I still here? Why am I still in this place? Why am I still staring down a broken marriage? Why am I still staring down this addiction? It's as bad as it's ever been. Why am I still here? And I feel the Lord telling you, if you're still here, it might be because you're too still. Sometimes the reason we are still here is because we refuse to take that first step out of our past and into the future that God has predestined before the world was even laid. Sometimes the reason we're still here is just because we're too still here. And God's saying, when you begin to pour, you'll see more. Listen to me. If God is calling you out on a limb, it's because he knows that's where the fruit is. If God is calling you out on a limb today, it's because he knows that's where the fruitful part of your life is found. Go out on the limb. Trust him. I'm telling you, he's good. So all of a sudden, this woman begins to pour, and she's just going and going. The boys are bringing her pots. It's a, it's a group effort, and they're sitting there. And all of a sudden, she tops off a jar and says, hey, I don't know his name. Jethro, bring, bring me another one. And little Jethro goes, um... That's the last one. Like, that's all, that's all we got. And the Bible says this. Let's look at it. Verse 6 says this. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. Then the oil stopped flowing. What I want you to see is they didn't run out of oil. The oil didn't stop flowing because they ran out of oil. The oil stopped flowing because they ran out of jars, which tells me that God is ready to fill what you bring him. God is able to fill what you bring him. And the truth is this, if there are some parts of your life that God has not filled yet, it's not because he's stingy, it's not because he's on a budget and can't get around to you, it's because you have not brought it. God filled what they brought. 
And I'm here to tell you today, if you bring it, God will fill it. If you bring it, God will fill it. So all of a sudden that she's pouring, and then the oil stopped. They've got all these jars and she sits there like, uh, what's next? And they're like, this, Elisha didn't tell us what to do next. Like, I, I didn't know this was gonna happen. Okay. And so they have to go back to Elisha and this is what happens. Look at, she goes back to Elisha, verse seven says this. She came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live rest. Go sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your sons, the little boys who were about to be enslaved because of the debt they owed, now have the debt paid and their future paid for. All of a sudden, she's just this miraculous thing. And as I was pouring over this passage of scripture, I got to this part and I said, God, this is amazing that this woman had this little vat of oil, but we don't have a magic vat of oil sitting under our nose. Like what I'm telling you is not go to your pantry and literally grab your olive oil and start pouring it out. I think all of you know that. And I did not want to send you home saying, that's great for her, super inspiring, Kenan. But what is my jar of oil? What is my jar of oil? And as I just began to read this and I asked God, God, what does this oil, what does the oil look like in our lives? All of a sudden I felt the Holy Spirit whisper to me, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And I know, listen to me, I know that sounds like the children's church answer. Jesus is the answer for everything, but literally this oil is Jesus. Oil is symbolic of anointing. It's also symbolic of the presence of God. Jesus is the anointed one and he is the literal tangible presence of God. He's the word made flesh. He's the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the oil. The oil was what she overlooked. It was what she marginalized. It was what she had rejected. The Bible calls Jesus the stone the builders rejected. The stone, the builder said, nothing good can come from that. In fact, they said, what good can come from Galilee? Jesus is the one who's been rejected. Jesus is the one who's been overlooked. Jesus is the one who was marginalized. And lastly, the oil is what she poured out and it paid her debt and it set her up and her family to live for the rest of her life. Jesus, as he hung on that cross, that old rugged cross and he poured out his life to pay your debt because you were enslaved to sin and you were wedged between the pain of your past and the fear of your future. And as he poured out his sacred blood, he purchased your freedom so that you and your children and your children's children could live off him the rest of your life. The oil is Jesus. I'm here to tell you this morning, your oil is Jesus. The question that we have to ask today is what are we gonna do with Jesus? Can I ask you something? And I want you to actually hear what I'm saying. When did Jesus stop being enough for you? When did Jesus Stop being enough. Because I'm telling you, 
when you're at the end of your rope, when you've got nothing left, he's that thing that's just sitting there. Say, would you dare? Would you dare to take a second look? And as I was pouring over this, I really felt God tell me there were gonna be people sitting in these seats. He said this to me. He said, they've put me on the shelf. <laughs> they've put me on the shelf of their life. They've called me too small and they've let me just collect dust in their soul. And he said, son, I want you to ask them, look again, look again, go again, trust again. You never know until you trust. I feel some of you today, you're that person that says, man, I put Jesus, I put Jesus in park. I look at my life and I have nothing. I'm telling you, you don't have nothing. You've got Jesus and he's enough. So right now with every head bowed and every eye closed, I wanna give you a moment to do the very thing I let off with and that is respond. I wanna give you a moment to respond to the grace of God that's come so close and so near to you. If you would say, Kenan, I am that person. I'm the person you're talking about. The Lord's convicted me. I know I've discounted my life. I've said I've have, I have nothing, but now the Holy Spirit has awakened my eyes to see I still have Jesus. And I wanna trust him. And I'm here to tell you right now, Jesus, if you will pour him on the empty parts of your life, you will find that he in and of himself, all by himself is enough. He's enough for you today. If you'd say, Kenan, I need to, I need to say yes to Jesus. I'm tired of leaving him in park. I'm tired of letting him collect dust. I'm tired of calling him too small. I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. Or maybe you need to say yes to Jesus for the first time in a long time. If you fall within one of those two categories this morning in a, in a moment, I'm gonna count to three. And I just want you to shoot your hand up as a sign of surrender and faith. This is a real moment. And really what I want you to do is take, take an internal shift and shut the door. Shut the door right now. Do not let the enemy in. Do not let him come in and discount this moment saying, who are you? Look at what you've done. You remember your last name. You know where you come from. God could never use the likes of you. It's time to shut the door. And right now with that door shut, it's just you and the Lord. If you would say, Kenan, I need Jesus. I want you to raise your hand. One, God loves you. Two, now is your moment. Three, if that's you, come on. If that's you at all, if you'd say yes or say yes again, come on. Take him off the shelf. If that's you, raise your hand. Hands going up literally all over this auditorium. Praise God. Praise God. I'm gonna pray with you and then we're gonna be dismissed. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for these hands because these hands represent a heart that's just been yielded to you. And Lord, I thank you that when the enemy comes in like a flood, you raise up a standard against him. And that standard is the blood of Jesus. That standard is what Jesus poured out to pay my debt. And Lord, I thank you that right now the door is shut forever. It is sealed. They are safe in your hand. There is nothing they can do to pluck themselves out. And Lord, I thank you that right now, you're meeting every need. I thank you that from this day forward, this is a monumental moment. They're gonna be able to mark time and space by this moment where God met them. And I thank you for it right now. It's in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. And everybody said, come on, amen, amen. Come on, let's put our hands together for those who just said yes to Jesus. Would you stand to your feet and then we're gonna be dismissed. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.